We're going to read through 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 through 10. And as you make your way there, I also want you to find your, your way to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1 is in the Old Testament. And we're just going to read the first verse uh, there at some point in the sermon. So when I finished this sermon on Friday, I thought, this isn't a very good sermon. <laughs> so I'm just apologizing right now because I didn't have enough time to do one in the next 24 hours. And I think it's because I'm trying to talk about something so big, you just can't seem to to get enough words around it. And then it's too long and you don't have the right illustrations and so we've been trying to sing about it and say something about it throughout the whole service. That's the, the Trinity, the work of God, the work of the Son, the work of the Holy Spirit. But you, know, you can say that, but then when you try to describe that, that just gets to be a big thing. So that's what we're going to attempt. And you, you, you're not, not on the way out, but later in the week you can say, yeah, don't do that again, Paul. That wasn't worth the time, but we'll try that today. Let's stand together and read the first ten verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And when I, Paul, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the power of the Spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, But in the power of God, yet among you, the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. You may be seated, and let's take a moment to reflect together on God's Word. David Foster Wallace, a great American writer, wrote a number of books, probably Infinite Jest is one of his um, most well-known works, a university professor, writer, poet, novelist. He spoke at a commencement, so a college group, this college professor. He addresses them, and he says this, a huge percentage of the stuff I tend to automatically be certain of turns out to be totally wrong. Here's one example. Everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I'm absolutely the center of the universe. The the realist, the most vivid, the most important person in existence. We rarely talk about this natural self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive, yet it is our default setting. Let's say an average day. You get up in the morning, you go to your challenging job, you work hard for 10 hours, And at the end of the day, you're tired and stressed out, and all you want to do is go home for supper. Unwind for a couple hours and then hit the rack because you have to get up the next day and do the same thing all over again. But then you remember there's no food at home. You ever had that feeling? Driving home, oh, I know there's nothing there to eat. So 
you have to stop by the supermarket. And you haven't had time to go to the supermarket because of your challenging job. So now you have to go after work. It's the end of the work day. The traffic's very bad. So getting to the store takes way longer than it should. And when you finally get to the supermarket, it's very crowded. You have to wander all over this huge store with overlit lights, crowded aisles, find the stuff you want. And you have to maneuver your junky cart through all those other tired, hurried, and, of course, people. And, of course, there are the glacially slow people and the spacey people and the kids who all block the aisle. And you have to grit your teeth and try to be polite as you try to maneuver around them. When you get to the checkout lines, you can guess. There aren't enough lanes open, which is stupid and infuriating. But you can't take your fury out on the frantic lady working the register. And he closes this with this. The point of all this and this situation is that really it's all about me. It's all about my hungriness, my fatigue, my desire to get home. And it seems like everyone else is just in my way. I wonder if you've ever felt that way. What's happening is I'm operating on, on automatic. It's an unconscious belief that I'm at the center of the world and that my immediate needs and feelings are what should determine the world's priorities. I'm the Lord of my own skull-sized kingdom. So David Foster Wallace is looking at this college group and he's concerned that they're going to spend their whole life in a skull-sized kingdom. That they're going to be wrapped around themselves so much that even though they wouldn't say it out loud, just the way they operate, it's their default setting. Their default setting is to maneuver through the, 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 the grocery store as if everyone's in the way. To go down College Road and to say, everyone is in my way. It's the way you and I tend to operate. And he hits the target on the human condition because of sin, we know that every person's in terrible danger of living at the center of their own skull-sized universe. Now, one clue as to whether you're in great danger of that is if you complain a lot. You know you're in terrible danger. And Wallace senses this danger, and he's trying to communicate it to this college graduating class, and Paul, I believe, the Apostle Paul, I think he senses the same kind of danger in the church at Corinth. He has left, and he's gotten a report back after some months after his leaving that that the people of Corinth have taken their eyes off Jesus, the person who has rescued them, and they've shrunk back into their own skull-sized kingdoms. They've gotten themselves wrapped around certain personalities, certain celebrities. And, of course, that's caused divisions in the church. And Paul spends actually the first four chapters. There's 16 chapters. So he spends a fourth of it just trying to unwind these divisions. He's trying to to reorient their thinking away from themselves to get them outside of their own skull-sized kingdom, as it would be, and back thinking and focus towards God. And perhaps the same default setting has happened for you this week or this month. You've just gotten locked into your own skull-sized kingdom. And you, you need the same kind of reorientation the Apostle Paul is trying to give to us this morning. I want us to, to see and consider 
one of the ways Paul uh, torpedoes this self-centeredness and how he tries to refocus their attention on God. He does this primarily by reminding them of something that's really just too big for us to even understand, and that is the reality of God. Just this mind-bending reality that there is a God. It's much, the world is so much bigger than the size of your skull, and that he has personally entered into the world, and he has a way in which he works in people's lives. So Paul is trying to to move something so big into their lives that they would take their eyes off of themselves. And what makes this sermon difficult to say and difficult for you to understand is that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to move something so big next to you, especially if you're locked in your skull-sized kingdom, that it would just overwhelm you. You'd be like, it would just blow you away so you would get outside of yourself and realize that God is operating in the world. Maybe it would help if, if I illustrated it in this way. Imagine you're in, uh, you're in heavy traffic. You're a little frustrated. You're, you left a little bit later than you should have. You didn't really get something to eat. So now you're not just frustrated with the traffic. You're hungry. And let's say if you're a woman, you, you didn't quite apply your makeup in the way you had hoped because you were in a hurry. So you're sort of trying to apply your makeup at the same time you're trying to drive and you're kind of hungry. So you're really self-absorbed at that moment. You're just wrapped around yourself. And what if at that moment we could somehow suddenly transport you to the edge of the Grand Canyon? Or we could somehow transport you to the platform at the bottom of Niagara Falls. Or we could somehow transport you to the top of of Pikes Peak. Whatever your place is where you realize the Lord is so much bigger than me, whatever that place, imagine at that point standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon saying, "Uh, what about my mascara? I mean, you wouldn't say that. You would be so overwhelmed with what's in front of you, all of the things that you were focused on would go away. You don't stand at the base of Niagara Falls with this thunderous amount of water and say, I really want a cheeseburger right now. That's not what comes to mind. And that's what I think Paul's trying to do. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to push this thing of such size and such beauty and and in, in, into your life, into my life, so it gets us outside of ourselves to try to help us think in a much, much bigger way. Paul's trying to, to, to spend a few chapters here, and I'm trying to spend a few minutes trying to rekindle the wonder that we live in a transcendent world. We don't live in a closed system. As Christians, we believe we we live in an open system, and it's open to God's intervention. When you think of transcendent, you you think God's always operating. He doesn't just suddenly poke his finger in here and there. He's always operating in some way through all of my circumstances. And this is where I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 1, just to see how it is written in the Bible. Because you can kind of read through this and not pick this up. So Daniel is the person who lives in Jerusalem, and he happened to live in Jerusalem when the the evil Babylonians came in, destroyed their city, 
took the people from Jerusalem, the Jews from Jerusalem, to become slaves back in Babylon. This is one of the worst moments in Jewish history. And not only do they take the people, they they destroy the temple, they take the things of the temple out, and they actually put them in their own temple. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, this is the king where Jerusalem is, Nebuchadnezzar, he's the king of Babylon, he comes to Jerusalem to besiege it. And you notice just a few words later, he takes the, he takes the people, but he also takes the vessels of the house of God, and he brings them into the land of Shinar. Now, Shinar is where the, um, the Tower of Babel was built. So just the, the whole idea is we're going backwards. We were, t- we were called out of that place to be a new people, and now we're going backwards. And notice then all of these vessels to the house of God, they're brought into the other God's house. They're, they're brought into a pagan temple. But the verses I skipped, chapter 2, ver, I mean verse 2, notice this. This is the transcendence. This is Daniel saying, but I understand even in this terrible time, God's at work. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. Do you see that? At the worst moment in this guy's history, he's attributing it to the work of God. He's saying God is at work. God is transcendent. Even in this moment that seems so terrible to me, God is at work in this moment. I live in an open world where I know nothing is happening apart from the hand of God Almighty. And so I don't get locked into my little world. And this is what happens, especially when you get into pain or fear or frustration. You get locked down in your own little world. And Daniel's trying to tell the reader, even though this is a terrible moment, I want you, the reader, to know God Almighty is in charge of this moment. We live in this transcendent uh, universe, and that's what Paul's trying to push into the minds of the Corinthians who have, who have boiled their world down to just one celebrity pastor. Most of our days, if they're like my days, are filled with stress and fatigue, and it causes my world to shrink down. And so we're trying to push something into our brains that can't fit so it can help us get set outside of ourselves. Now, this is what I want us to do. Just circle these three huge realities in back now back 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. Notice this phrase, God decreed before the ages. So these are three big realities. God decrees things. Before the ages or before our time, before human history. Huge. One thing he decreed, this is the second big reality, chapter 2, verse 2, Jesus Christ and him crucified. God decrees things before the ages. One of the things he decrees, chapter 2, verse 2, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Crucified. Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, the chosen one. And you will remember from Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon, 
this man was hand, this man Jesus was handed over to you the people who killed Jesus by God's set purpose and foreknowledge everything that is happening the worst thing that ever happened on the planet was the crucifixion of God of Jesus on the cross And Peter is trying to help us understand this huge reality that it's because of God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Third big reality, chapter 2, verse 10. These things, what are these things? That God decrees things before the ages. One of the things that he decrees is Jesus Christ is in him crucified. These things only can be seen, how? If the Spirit reveals these things to you. So Paul, in, in just these few short chapters, few short verses, he's pushing these massive realities into the brains of the Corinthians who've gotten themselves wrapped around themselves. He's trying to introduce that God decrees things before things begin. One of the things, just in case your thing is difficult, he tries to help you understand, he decreed the actual death of his son. And the way you understand that or the way I understand that comes from outside of ourselves. It comes from the Holy Spirit of God revealing these things to us. Now, now this, this, these things are massive. But these three things together make something even more massive. And what is that? What, what is God decreeing, Christ cru- crucified, Spirit revealing? What's the one word description as Christians we give to that reality. It's the Trinity. (laughs) Now, if you think those three things were big, now try to put them all together in your brain. Now we've got this giant mountain range that we can't even get our minds wrapped around. And imagine you being enamored with a human preacher and the Trinity shows up. You see what Paul's trying to say? He's trying to say, guys, you're a, you're, you just think Peter's awesome or Apollos is awesome or Paul's awesome. Let's talk about the Trinity. Let's move you to the edge of the Grand Canyon so you go, okay, it's not about human personalities. It's not about celebrity. It's not about me. It's about God. It's all about God. He's trying to move in this massive reality. And one of these things that we call, it's one of these things we call the Trinity. The Trinity, two words, tri, meaning three, unity, meaning one. Three things that somehow come together and make one. It's a foundational belief of the Christian faith. It's why we said what we said in the the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, and in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. That's what the, the early fathers were trying to help us see in one creed. Now, you may know that the Trinity is not a word that's found in the Bible, but it's the best word that we can have that describes this huge reality. And let me just show you by a couple of verses. Genesis 1, 26, God says, let us create man in our image. Hmm. I wonder who he's referring to in us. Let us create man in our image you see you just see the hint it's this in the full doctrine of the trinity but you just see the hint of some kind of plurality in the godhead you see it over and over again in the new testament 
with this Trinitarian formula, Matthew 28:19, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, what? In the name of the Father, and in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit. So you see this formula happening, and then there's several places in the New Testament where each person is referred to. Yet they have this distinct role. John 14, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in Jesus' name, will teach you all things and remind you everything I, Jesus, have said to you. So you see it. You read through that. You kind of just go on to the next verse, but you've just, you've just catapulted across this huge mountain range of information. Now, now much more could be said about why the Trinity is important, or about the Trinity. But uh, one of the questions I'm asking here is, okay, why is this important? Paul's trying to push this reality into the minds of the people because it's so much bigger than themselves. But what does that really matter to us? And here's one answer I would give. If If God is the creator of the universe, then what we admire in the universe would be a reflection of his reality. Does that make sense? If God has created the universe, then the things that we enjoy, the things that we think are beautiful, they, they, would, they wouldn't exist all by themselves. They'd just be reflections of his reality. Let me give you a, a few examples. Now, hold on. I'm getting to an illustration, and your mind can slow down, all right? But let me just give you a couple of illustrations. We love equality and diversity, right? We value both of those things. We, we hunger for people to be equal, but we don't want everybody to be a cookie cutter. We want people to be different, but somehow equal. And where do we see that in the very beginning? We see it in the Trinity. We, we are individuals built for relationship. We love individuality. We love community. We're, we're individuals. We're unique, but we can only function in a community. We cannot function outside of relationship. Where do you see that? It's reflected in the Trinity. We, we, our hearts, your heart, I'm sure, if your heart's not just a heart of stone, and I don't think it is, when you see love and sacrifice put together, when you see love expressed through sacrifice, it always hits you just right in the heart. That's why it's a theme in so many movies or, or songs. It's because it's a universal theme that where, is, where do you first find it? You first find it in the Trinity. Now, let, let me give you a couple examples. Who's seen the movie Inside Out? Okay, I'm trying to get down to the, not to the lower level, but the Disney people in the audience. All right, so if you haven't seen Inside Out, it's going to be hard for you to understand this, but there's a girl, and the, the, the main characters in the movie are these emotions that are in her head. It's, it's called the, the uh, mission control. And the main character in the movie, besides the girl, is this one, uh, one characteristic called joy, this one emotion called joy. And she, in the movie, she falls out of mission control. So once you fall out of mission control, then the girl can't have joy anymore because she's out of mission control. You remember this? You nodding your head with me? You remember this? Okay, good. All right, so a lot of the movie is her just trying to get back to mission control. And she runs into this uh, stuffed animal. Remember him, the pink elephant? Bing bong, right? I'm getting somewhere with this, right? And you're glad we're not talking about the Trinity right now. I can feel it. 
and they fall into what's called the memory dump. Do you remember this? All these little memories that are like balls, like bowling balls. And in the memory dump, what happens to memories in the memory dump? Oh, so sad. They disappear. So joy is down in the memory dump with Bing Bong the elephant. And they've got to get out of the memory dump or else they're going to disappear. But it's a super high cliff to get out and it's impossible to climb up. And without explaining it, they get a red wagon and they sing a song and they almost get, you remember this? They almost get to the top and they can't get to the top. And then on the third time, bing bong, he hands that. This is going to make you cry if you go back and see it. He puts out his one hand because one arm is already disappearing. Have a good feeling about this one. Let's try it one more time, Joy. You remember what happens? Sing, Joy. Sing, sing, sing. And she's singing the song. She's singing the song. Boom. And right when they start lifting off, he jumps off. So she would have enough momentum to get to the top. And she stands at the top and says, we made it, we made it, we made it. But guess what? Bing Bong didn't make it. And she looks back over and she sees him celebrating her making it. And he starts disappearing. Take her to the moon for me. Oh, that's a killer. If you remember that. Oh, I'm going to start crying right now. As he disappears, someone disappears for joy to succeed. Where does that come from? Why is that a universal thing? Why does everyone love that? It's a reflection of the Trinity. That's why these things are important. Now, let me try to capture another group of people with another movie. So how many have seen, how many have seen the, book, the, the, the movie The Notebook? All right, guys, you don't need to raise your hand, right? <laughs> We know every girl. And why is it on television 24-7, right? It, because it's the kind of movie that once you've seen it, if you like it, it doesn't matter where in the movie is, you're going to stop and watch the rest of the movie. Well, I'm not going to get into all the details of the movie, but why do you like this movie? Besides Ryan Gosling, okay, besides him, here's a guy he goes out of his way to capture the attention of this girl. Remember that? It's hanging on the Ferris wheel. When they get separated, he faithfully writes all the time to her. Remember that? She's out just living a life, not remembering poor Ryan. He builds the house of her dreams. He would made that promise. I'm not going to forget about you. I'm going to build the house of your dreams. Even though she was out of the picture. And even though she almost marries another guy. And she comes back in and finds this guy who's been uh, unconditionally loving her. Without her even really paying much attention to him. And it's such a beautiful moment. But to me the most beautiful moment in the story. Is when you find out as an older couple. She's completely forgotten about him because she has dementia. And what is he doing? He's reading their story back to her. It's kill. Oh, it's a killer. Why do you love that? Why, why do you watch it every time? Why do you cry when Bing Bong disappears? This is the relationship that you and I are invited in to be involved with in the Trinity. 
And it's so big, it's so huge, that if you just come to church and say, I just really love that preacher, it's just not about that. It's not about that preacher, and it's not about your little skull-sized kingdom. Paul is desperately trying to push in these huge realities to help you understand that God is in control. He's involved in your life. And even if you're stuck, hungry in traffic, he's part of that. And he's trying to get us outside of ourselves and to try to really understand God. So, here, I'm going to try to shift gears here now. Sorry, I'm done with the movie illustrations. Back to the hard work. Oh, I hear that pain. Oh. <laughs> I want to shift gears just to quickly show you that, that how the Trinity plays a unique role in your salvation from God's perspective. All right, now, your perspective is, is a great perspective. You have a story about how you got saved. Let's say you were 16 and you went on a mission trip or you went on to a camp trip or you went to a D-Now weekend or whatever that is. And somehow, maybe you'd heard the gospel story before, but this was the weekend. The light seemed to come on and, and you stood up or you said something or you wrote something down. I gave my life to Christ this weekend. That's a great story. That's a true story. But that's only a little piece of the story. You realize that? Your salvation is much bigger than that. It actually has a God perspective on it. And that's what Paul's trying to help them see here by using these three phases. First of all, God planned something. When did he plan it? Chapter 2, verse 7. He planned it before the age begins. So your salvation was first planned by the Father before time began. Try to get that in your mind doesn't fit. God decrees things before time begins. So if we ask ourselves, when did the gospel begin? Did it begin at Jesus' death and resurrection around 30 AD? You would say, well, not exactly. When did it begin? It began before the beginning of time. It wasn't as if God had a plan for a good world and Adam kind of screwed it up. And now we've got to go plan B. Oh, and God's kind of scrambling. Like, I didn't realize that was going to happen, and now I've got to scramble for a plan B. Anybody here in heaven want to go down and die on their behalf? Any volunteers? That's not how it worked. All of this was worked out before the creation of the world. God sees the beginning from the end. He sees the cross and the resurrection, and he sees your salvation. They're all part of plan A. 1 Peter 1.20, God was, Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world. Not only was Jesus chosen before the creation of the world, Ephesians 1.4, God chose us in him before the creation of the world. This is so big, you can't even put it in the right kinds of words. But the goal is just to get you outside of yourself and to see how God's moving in your life. That God's call on you began long before your call on him. Second thing we read. God planned. Jesus purchased. He purchased your salvation by his death on the cross. Chapter 2, verse 2. Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we're familiar with this last cry of Jesus on the cross. It is finished. It's an accounting term. It means it's been paid in full. 
It's, it's stamped on a document saying nobody needs to pay anything because everything's been paid. And so our debt has been finally paid for by God. It's as if on the cross, Jesus disappears for a few minutes. So we could live. Might be helpful to contrast this with Buddhism. Buddha's last words, strive without ceasing. So you're Buddhist, and what do you got to do? You got to strive without ceasing. Does that sound like good news? No. <laughs> See, the gospel is the exact opposite. Cease your striving. Cease beating yourself up over what you did or didn't do. Cease cleaning yourself up in order to be accepted. Cease trying to pay your debt down. Cease your striving because Jesus has done all the striving for you. And finally, how do you know all this is true? How can you even get your mind even beginning around around these huge realities? The Spirit has to help you see it. It doesn't come by natural man. It's not going to come from a professor. It's not going to come from a book. It's got to come from the Holy Spirit. It has to act on your life in some way. And Warren Wiersbe has such a great little commentary on it. Let me read it for you as we get to the close. This Trinitarian aspect of our salvation helps us understand better some of the mysteries of our salvation. As far as the Father is concerned, I was saved when he chose me in Christ before the foundation of the world. Yet I didn't know anything about that the night I was saved. As far as the Son is concerned, I was saved when he died for me on the cross. He died for the sins of the whole, of the whole world, yet the whole world isn't saved. This is where the Spirit comes in. As far as the Spirit is concerned, I was saved in May 1945 at a Youth for Christ rally where I heard Billy Graham preach the gospel. That was when the Holy Spirit applied the word to my heart, I believed, and God saved me. That's your story. Do you you see your story of salvation? It's so much bigger than when you were 16 and what you did. It's so much bigger than you giving your life to Christ. It's what happens is Christ gave his life for you. And Paul's trying to push these huge realities in the lives of these people So they really understand how to get outside of themselves and and think about God interacting in their world. So why, why did I try to put this all together in a sermon? Successfully or maybe unsuccessfully. Because I think David Foster Wallace puts his hand or his finger on the pulse for most of us. We live our lives. Sometimes it's frustrating. We're getting a traffic jam. Our kids don't do what we thought we were going to do. We're going to be late. The world isn't working out. My life isn't working out like I thought it was going to. And you just, like me, just you easily get wrapped around yourself. And you're, you live your whole life in a skull-sized kingdom. So I'm trying to push this thing even though it's so big and so so hard to understand i'm trying to push it into your mind to help you understand you live in a world where god is involved in your life 
He is involved. He understands the frustration, the fear, the anxiety, the trouble. He understands it. He's decreed things from the beginning to the end. And so we can trust him, no matter what's happening in our lives, that he is sovereignly in control of all things. And then when we see him face to face, as we sang in the song, in the song all glory to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I know that I could have a heart that edges towards complaining. I could have a heart that sees people as objects in my way. I can lose heart and think, well, what, what, is, what is it I'm doing? Is this even valuable? And so I, maybe this sermon was just for, for, for me, the audience of one, to, to help see that you really are working. You, you're so much bigger than what I could imagine. Help, help our minds expand in some way outside of ourselves because of your word today. and Cause us to have greater confidence, to, to stand with greater firmness in the truth of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.